Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 10th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so uh, we gather that the coronavirus relief stimulus package uh, will be finalized today on the Hill and go to Joe Biden for signature, and that tomorrow night, Thursday night, he will be delivering a primetime address, both commemorating the year um, and the uh, the year that we have lost to, to COVID and taking a victory lap on the passage of this uh, colossal piece of legislation. Polling has come out uh, today from CNN suggesting wide popular support for this bill um, between those who say they are totally supportive of it or somewhat supportive of it. It is uh, 75 to 19. Um, Although interestingly enough, Biden's own approval rating is only at 51%, though that's better than... uh, uh, Trump ever ever was at um, he uh, and the various provisions in the bill, as they used to say in Republican polling, are seventy percent issues. Like they they actually did manage to harness things that when you ask people if they want them, they want them. Like here, do you want a check from the government? Sure. Do you want you know? Should they spend more money to help schools reopen? Yes. Should they do this? Yes. Everything is uh, everything seems to be totally fine with the electorate. And so I think we have here, whether you hate it or don't hate it or think, oh, they've made a terrible mistake or they haven't made a terrible mistake, whatever, however you want to slice it, uh, they have a gigantic win here. That I'm just putting that out. This is a gigantic win, a politically popular legislation uh, passed uh, entirely on the it's now entirely a democratic thing because only Democrats have voted for it in both, both bodies and, uh, and Biden is signing it and uh, the polling is good. And we are on the verge of an economic uh, roaring economic recovery that this will give them, I think false and scant reason, but who's going to argue with it uh, to claim that they participated in the economic recovery with, with the bill. So, uh, I want to bring up one other thing, and then and then you guys talk, and I'll I'll be silent. Um, this morning on CNN, um, Anthony Fauci was being interviewed by John Berman, uh, and John Berman said, uh, "You say you support the science. What is the science for for not yet saying that vaccinated Americans can now travel?" And Fauci said, basically, in response, you can find this clip that um, uh, things are happening and uh, we're going through the CDC's being very careful. And over the next couple of weeks, you should probably see a liberalization in guidance because, but you know, when you, when you don't have the facts and you don't have the evidence, he says, literally, this is a phrase, you have to make a judgment call. So apparently the judgment call right now is that except for hugging other people who have been vaccinated or hugging your grandchildren, you can't talk to anybody or see anybody and you have to sit in a closet with the door locked and everything sealed. Uh, But like next Tuesday, it'll all be fine. Um, So the judgment call is uh, we lock everything down until we decide that it is politically or personally or emotionally prudent for us to change the way we think about it because the facts and the evidence are not there. That's how I read it in the darkest possible way. The other darkest possible way I read it is that they are waiting until Thursday when the bill is signed and the national address is given and that it will be happy, you know, happy days are here again. And over the course of the next three weeks, there will be massive uh, changes in CDC guidance to tell everybody that things can open up. 
Oh, cynicism. Yes. Cynicism, my sweet, sweet friend. I think you're absolutely right. We've we've been saying this um, uh, and it might sound cynical, but in fact, I think there's a pattern and practice of behavior by the by the Biden administration that suggests this is actually their their strategy. The other area in which I think the CDC's you know politicization of public health advice has been obvious is if everyone goes to USA Today, there's a piece in there uh, written by researchers who who point out in in great detail, the ways in which the CDC deliberately misconstrued research about the safety of reopening schools in order to make a political messaging about how it was unsafe and which, as we've discussed many times, was clearly a payoff to the teachers union. So I don't think it's cynical at all at this point to say that this part of the rollout strategy and celebratory strategy of this bill passing will be, um, you know, the agencies under the control of the Biden administration loosening restrictions and, you know, telling people it's okay. We'll see, I think, at the local level, if there's any pushback against that by local leaders, that'll be a curious uh, little bit of power uh, uh, grabbing that'll go on. But yeah, no, I don't think it's cynical at all at this point to say this. I mean, it could also simply be, I mean, which I'm sure is a part of it, that there is this idea among public health officials that let's um, keep the public from using their own judgment for as long as we can. Uh, you know, who knows how long that is, but so when there's a vaccine, when it's time to, to, give guidance. Um, let's not start out by saying that they can do more. Let's start out by by, by saying they can do less and uh, cross our fingers and hope that they do do less and let's get some more vaccines out there. And then maybe we'll tease that, that they can do more. Because if we give them an inch, they're going to take a mile and they're going to infect everyone and we're going to have another spike and but on it's and a, on they're on. describing a dysfunctional relationship, right? They're breadcrumbing the it. public. It's like we'll give you a little bit here, so you and then you'll come back for more, maybe a little bit more. And the the, the public is put in this infantilizing position of begging for breadcrumbs of, of approval, and it's it's astonishing that we've accepted this at this point. <laughs> um, there was a really um, fascinating piece yesterday in the Washington Post by a practicing internist named uh, Lucy McBride. Um, who basically said she's a primary care doctor. She's vaccinated against the coronavirus, but she is, she finds that she cannot, she's afraid to get out of the cocoon, even though she is vaccinated. Um, And she even says that uh, this is an anxiety response based on uh, what happened over the past year and the uh, view that so many people fell into that basically every uh, other people pose a danger to you by their very existences and you might yourself pose a danger to someone else. So she actually says to mitigate the expected anxiety, rational or irrational, we assemble a kit of uh, coping tools. I commonly recommend breathing techniques, guided meditation, regular exercise, prioritizing sleep and spending time in nature to deal with anxiety. And in this case, as she says, the science is clear that vaccines protect us from illness and help prevent trans transmission too. But in this period, people are acting as though they have been traumatized. They have been traumatized and it's just hard for them to get out of their own ways and embrace it. And they are being gaslighted in some weird way by the public health system, which is saying, yes, 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 remain scared, remain afraid, You're, things are bad, things are terrible. Uh, or, you know, they could be terrible next week. Uh, I famously once said when I was a kid, uh, and I I, slid, I I was at a public pool, actually in, in, in London, we were staying with friends, and I, I, I tripped and I hurt my ankle, or I felt I hurt my ankle, and there was actually a doctor on duty at the pool so my parents said, well, why don't you go over and talk to the doctor? I don't know if I did or not or something. And I have no memory of this, but I came back, I think it was nine or something. And uh, they said, well, what did he say? And he, I, he, I said, he said it was fine, but it might break later. So uh, they're sort of saying it might break later. You know, there could be a fourth wave. Yeah, there could be a fourth wave. There could also be a fire. There could be a tsunami. I mean, there are things that can happen, and you don't live your life predicated on the idea that there is a disaster that is is on the way when all the data and indications are that uh, the coronavirus crisis of the winter is over. It is over. We are. We are. We have plunging caseloads. We have plunging hospital admissions. We have a plunging death toll. P- 
period. And yet they're saying, you know, it might break later. Now, granted, it's not entirely the same thing, but I thought it was a it was a it was a sort of nasty ad hominem analogy. So I thought maybe I would. Uh, I, I love that piece about um, the sort of trauma of um, returning to normal because um, I think that, you know, when, when all is said and done, that is what returning to normal means is, is, is about individual attitudes. It's, it's not about the guidance. It's not, it's not even about the case numbers. It's not, it's about how people feel about, um, you know, their interaction in the world. You know, in pop psychology, there's all this, all this study of habits um, like, cause if you, if you build good habits this way, you can, you can put them together and build a better life. So how long does it take to build a good habit? Is it 22 days? Is it 90 days? Well, it's been more than a year of all of us, um, adopting the habits of an agoraphobic. And, and that is the trauma is, is, you know, right. Nor, nor could she decouple in her own narrative, her anxiety, as she put it from her own sense of comfort. She routinely discussed how she kind of liked it. She kind of liked putting, not having to wear pants and not having to go out on weekends and not having to attend conferences. It was comfortable. And having to get rid of that is a source of anxiety. But right. it's also a, a, a frustration. And, you know, the, this is sort of indicative of this the, in this interview that Fauci gave to CNN. He said, yeah, the guidances are going to change in the coming weeks and you're going to get guidance about travel and getting a haircut. And I stopped dead in my tracks. Getting a haircut? Does does he think that hairstylists have been living on PPP loans for the last year? Does he think that everybody has been staying away from the salon and the barber for the last 53 weeks? I mean, stay in your home. Keep your PJs on. We shall inherit the earth and we'll be okay. Well, but there's isn't there there's a weird thing going on now that um, is was possible to predict even at the early stages of, of you know, the, this previous year, which is, you know, there were all these sort of physical preparedness things that suddenly we all became aware we needed, you know, masks and gloves and we have to do this and that and the other. All that's fine. But the whole time there was a kind of we've all become sort of emotional preppers, not that we're emotionally prepared, but preppers like on high alert emotionally. And, and that does. So I, I had sympathy for her in the sense that she was being really honest about the anxiety level, because I have a lot of sympathy for that. I know a lot of people who have felt like that. We've all had moments of that throughout this past year. But the idea that the that it's impossible to go from DEFCON level, you know, five back down to one or is it the other way? I don't know. Um, it, that, no one knows. No one yeah, can ever remember. The emotional <laughs> prepper is not a is not a worldview that we should be clinging to at this right. stage. And that's where a lot of our elites in particular still seem to be. Right. Well, I mean, the other thing about depression and let's say that like the society was was driven into a, a state of not economic depression, but actual sort of clinical depression is that um, the emergence from it is often, you know, described by people who are struggling with it as like climbing out of a hole or having to, you know, climb up, a, you know, scrabble up, a, you know, you're in a pit and you're trying to scrabble up top. And that is hard. Like that is not, you know, you, you, um, you feel overwhelmed. You, you, you limit your world and narrow it down to what feels safe. And then you're told that everything else is safe, but you don't really know that. And then there are people who like fight against it. Don't aren't, don't, don't aren't susceptible to depression in that way. So they, so they're angry. They're angry about the guidance. They're angry about, you know, they're, they're angry about mass. They're angry about all of this. Um, And then there's sort of like the vast, maybe not a vast majority of people, but sort of the people in the middle who are prudent and cautious. And I would say under those circumstances, um, hew more or lean more maybe in the direction of the depressed prepper type than they do the angry, I'm getting out of this as soon as I can get out of this. Because um, once you take an attitude of caution, uh, when you remove it, it's like you are embracing recklessness, not that you're moving from caution to sort of, you know, common sense, but, it, but everything will feel reckless and it's going to be hard to, it's, it's not, you know, maybe after a, a period of time, we will be in the roaring twenties again, you know, uh, but it'll, it'll be a period of time. That's why Lucy McBride's piece is so, 
is so thoughtful, I think. Um, one other stat from that USA Today piece by the University of Chicago researchers who point out that the CDC has misused their their own study is this really staggering number. And, I, you know, I, I've sort of known about this, or, but I hadn't thought about it in months. So we have had, I believe, 530,000 deaths attributed to corona in the United States in the last year. Uh, among uh, people uh, between the ages of 0 and 17, the number of deaths out of that 530,000, 288. 288. So if my math is correct, and please correct me if I'm wrong because my math is terrible, that I believe is 120th of 1% of the death toll. So if you think that you are preventing uh, COVID by keeping schools closed because kids might transmit it to teachers, uh, you're, that's a lie. And I mean, uh, this, is, this is a rate of infection and disease and death that is so spectacularly low in the middle of a pandemic that once again, we have to think that um, there was some kind of weird divine intervention here that children who are ordinarily the worst victims of some kind of a pandemic disease have been um, excused from it um, for reasons that nobody understands. Well, and I, I, I would point out that, that I was interested that it was the age range went up to 17 because we've seen a lot of people willing to concede that it might be safe for elementary school kids to go back, for example. But middle school and high schoolers are always held out of that equation. Um, but they because are actually... Because they just can't be trusted. They can't <laughs> right. be trusted to keep socially distant and all of that. Well, and that's another fact that I think, you know, we we all, those of us who are following this closely, like the three feet apart versus six feet apart thing has also numerous studies have come out in the last month that show there's not really a difference in terms of whether you see people three feet apart or six feet apart indoors in schools in these situations. And that's in part because of the statistic you just read, John, which is that it's just a lower risk for all kids. Um, and that, I mean, again, like, you know, we're all uh, the fact that Biden's CDC is manipulating science in order to make a policy point. I heard that for four years about Trump and I'm hearing very little about it, very little critique of that fact, which we know to be a fact now um, from anyone in the mainstream media. It's just not it, they're just not touching this just like they, you know. I, I hope that after his remarks on Thursday, Biden finally takes some questions, for example, from the press, something he's also not done yet. So there, there's just a lot of double standards in play that we're all, you know, it's early on, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, time's a wasting for this administration to start doing the things it criticized the previous one for doing. Oh, it'll be held accountable. Oh, they don't care. <laughs> they do not care. The question is, do the voters the people, care? What the people who have assigned themselves the task of holding politicians accountable, do they care? And that's, that's, I think, what we're really going to learn. You know, all this stuff, we're talking about COVID and, and, and the numbers and all of that. Over the course of the past year, I myself have found incredible wisdom, guidance, thoughtful uh, perspectives and hard data provided to me by the Bonson Group. Uh, David Bonson produces, as I keep telling you, two different uh uh, newsletters, uh, one, the dctoday.com, which comes out every evening, and the uh, dividendcafe.com, which comes out at the end of the week. Um, and uh, David, this is a financial management firm with uh, $2.5 billion under management, um, featuring, among others, former Council of Economic Advisors Chief Larry Kudlow. And uh, uh, David and his team uh, apply rigorous, fact-based deep thinking and analysis, not only to where we are in terms of uh, daily market fluctuations, but how the markets interact with the politicians and the policymakers, how we're going to look at uh, the economic recovery that is coming and the uh, massive amounts of public spending uh, that are going to accompany it in terms of where inflation is going to be. That's something you can, I'm sure, will be a focus, a considerable focus of the Bonson Group's work. And as I say, uh, ongoing, though not really part of the specific financial discussion, but obviously key to the world economy and the U.S. economy, is very clear thinking and, and examinations of the hard data 
uh, involving the pandemic and the spread of uh, the virus and hospitalizations and all of that. And all of that comes uh, free for free of charge if you go read the DC Today dot com and dividendcafe.com and if you are looking to have some serious financial management you should consider the bonson group which is of course the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry and we thank them for sponsoring the commentary podcast um so democrats riding high uh i think basically but of course there is still a huge amount of anxiety uh, uh, we have here a triumph of the, uh, uh, both the, uh, ideological wing of the, uh, of the left, uh, in many, uh, factors here in this bill and a triumph of the old fashioned, just spend a huge amount of money because we're Democrats. And I, we know, I know Republicans have not been budgetarily prudent or conscious over the last, you know, five years or t- whatever, but, um, you know, we're just, this is a different order of business here. Republicans tend to spend money uh, in a crisis and Democrats tend to look at a crisis as a way of spending money. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, so, uh, so they, they're getting what they want. Uh, it's binding the two sides of the party together, let's say. Um, but, you know, there is a piece today by Tom Edsel in the New York Times about anxieties among Democrats about their coalition. And uh, it's pretty interesting because it brings up yet again one of the uh, key subjects for social science study in the wake of the 2020 election, which is that uh, Biden won by four and a half. He won by four and a half by seizing back white voters uh, from uh, Trump in 2016. Uh, meanwhile, there are these green shoots among ethnic groups in the United States, particularly Hispanics, but not just Hispanics, also African-Americans, um, where the African-American vote for Republicans has doubled since 2012. And the tw- that got uh, 17% versus uh, 8.5% or something like 2012 for Obama, 8.5% of the black vote went to Republicans and something like 17% went to Rep- to Trump in 2020 and the Hispanic vote, particularly in certain groups, uh, the the spread is even wider. And this whole question of whether or not Democrats are embracing a version, a weird, bizarro world version of the Republican seizure of social issues to solidify their base and to imagine that the American public is far more, say, right-wing than it was because they keep pushing social issues that are not of that much interest to actual voters. And similarly, Democrats seem to be on track to doing much the much the same thing. Noah, you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, that's the conventional wisdom is that the Democratic Party's um, liberal wing is so out of touch with the general public and it's lean towards more social conservatism that it'll alienate um, just enough voters to make life pretty difficult for them in the next two cycles. Uh, a more adventurous take, I think, was um, one that was uh, produced by the political analyst Charlie Cook writing in the National Journal um, yesterday, who we went off and said, you know, this bill that is going to be the Biden administration's signature achievement you know, looks like a win to an extent. Um, But if you really were to game out the next two years, the question of how this plays is, is really um, sort of a a matter of interpretation. So one of the reasons why we had such a short impeachment trial and that Democrats did not take advantage of the bipartisan vote for witnesses uh, was an off the record quote that struck me uh, or an unattributed quote from an administration official told the Washington post that, look, the Biden administration has economic bona fides to prove. Democrats are behind the eight ball with voters when it comes to economics, and they have to prove their competency on this issue, and anything that takes us away from that issue is bad for this administration. Thus, the push to get this bill across. And Charlie Cook notes that um, this is very much antithetical to just about every um, gauzy, hazy notion of comedy and collegiality and bipartisanship that Joe Biden ran on, because in the process of pushing this bill through, they alienated every Republican voter and really uh, every Republican member of Congress, it's a party line vote, 
and um, frustrated significantly um, several members of the Democratic caucus who are more moderate in uh, their political predilections. And that's going to come back to bite them because they poisoned the well. The notion here that you're going to get any more bipartisan support for grand proposals like infrastructure, for example, they want $4 trillion of infrastructure spending. Maybe it's not going to be an easy road anymore. All the social engineering legislation that's coming out of the House isn't going to go anywhere in the Senate. So Joe Biden's big signature achievement is maybe just this. And how it affects the uh, recovery is, again, something that even economists can't fathom because we've never done this kind of spending before, this level of Keynesian stimulus. Um, So there's really quite a few questions about just how this will play. Right now, it's extremely popular in the polls. And never in any point in American history, much less recent American history, has a giant spending bill ever become less popular as it was passed and people began to find out what was in it and its economic effects were beginning to be felt. And they weren't as uh, entirely beneficial as the people who broadcast this bill felt. We have multiple examples of that in recent history, and there's every reason to believe that this bill will have unintended consequences, some of them not as salubrious as its advocates believe it to be. Um, And Republicans are in a better position than Democrats give themselves credit for. They're just looking at the top lines of the polls right now, and polls move. Now, if you're going to hang your hat on that argument, it's going to come back to bite you. Okay, but Abe, uh, the the problem here is that... uh, Everybody thinks, whether or not there was this stimulus bill or not, that there is going to be a serious and like uh, roaring economic recovery as we get out of the pandemic. I mean, that is like, that's some economics 101. We have pent up demand, we have pent up workforce, we have all kinds, everything is pent up and will explode outward. And so even if the bill may not be effective or may be inflationary or something like that, uh, the bad effects of it may be covered by this roaring recovery that you will hear Biden take credit for and say that this, you know, was a signal achievement of, and we have a total analogy to this, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, which is how Biden is dealing with uh, the vaccine production and the vaccine rollout, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, but uh, how, I mean, Noah may be right that it's a, and I believe it is a terrible bill that will have terrible adverse consequences. I'm not sure that those will show up the way the stim, the, the Obama stimulus, uh, in the depths of a recession proved to be relatively, uh, unhelpful to bringing about recovery summer 2010. And that was just inarguable. The economy didn't recover the way it was supposed to, and that he was punished at the polls in 2022. Well, if the economy recovers the way it's supposed to, and he shouldn't get credit for it, but he'll still, shouldn't Democrats look to imagine that they will be rewarded in 2022? I think the the, the Democrats will be able to make um, every argument, you know, um, uh, and, and some um, falsely in favor of the of the stimulus. Uh, because of the the inevitable um, boom that is that is coming, um, and they will be able to take all sorts of credit for that 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 may not be justified. Um, what I don't think they can hide, it, it, if it happens, are the catastrophic effects of inflation, and I, and I, I don't see how they how that doesn't get uh, tied directly to this. There's there's. Sure. And they're worried enough about that, actually, right now. That so, you remember there there was a little news blurb a couple of months ago about you know right after Biden won, and they started talking about the next stimulus bill. There's an entire super PAC that's been created to support and promote this bill called Unite America. It's already buying up tons of ad space. They've just you know the Biden administration just announced that Biden and and um, the first lady and Kamala Harris are all going to do go on like a on a boastful tour of the country, you know, promoting how they've, you know, rescued America with the American rescue plan. So they actually, and they see this as a direct response to what they felt was a failure on the part of Obama to take enough credit and to constantly remind people that they, we rescued you, we rescued you, you know, and they're, they're doing it all kind of dancing around the issue of the 2022 uh, midterms, but that's precisely what they're hoping is they're going to give all their Democrats cover to, to, to brag about how we rescued America. I actually think that message for 
for voters who who showed down ballot that they weren't all that enthusiastic about uh, uh, Democrats, even if they did vote for Biden at the top of the ticket, that they could overplay their hand a little bit with people, if that's the case. Um, you know, we rescued you is a very paternalistic sort of uh, infantilizing, another word I've been using too much on this podcast, but it, it does have that, it, it can spark that reaction in some people. Um, so guys, uh, I want to talk as I do every day now, it will be this month about uh, Mark Gerson's amazing book, uh, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Beating of Life, this uh, book-length examination, study, questioning, uh, analysis, and uh, praise for the Haggadah, the, the, the manual to the Passover Seder. Um, Senator Joe Lieberman says, in The Telling, Mark Gerson brilliantly illuminates some of the big questions from the Haggadah whose answers can define what constitutes a meaningful life by showing how the Haggadah enables its readers to deploy ancient Jewish wisdom to help answer the most contemporary questions. This book will help your Pesach to be what it can be a life guiding event every year for anyone who learns enough to give it the opportunity. So please, as I keep telling you, go to Amazon, go to Barnes and Noble, go to your bookseller, go download an audio book version, whatever you want to do. Uh, in preparation for your Seder, if you're just somebody who wants to learn more about this signal, fascinating Jewish text, if you're not Jewish, it will help explain Judaism to you in a way that other books uh, don't do so much. Um, go get The Telling by Mark Gerson, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. So <laughs> not simply to quote and cite pieces after piece, particularly in the New York Times, but um when I say they'll they'll piggyback on the successful economy to give themselves credit for uh, helping it with the bill, I'm also thinking of um, the fact that today in the New York Times, there is finally an acknowledgement uh, by the mainstream media of the fact that the, um, uh, the virus rollout, the vaccine rollout came, quote, with Trump's help, okay? Trump administration officials grumble that they laid the groundwork for surging vaccinations, but some hard work in the trenches has helped pick up the pace of production. So Sharon Lefrenier's piece lays out how Operation Warp Speed got this started, hundreds of millions of doses and all of that. And then they say, but, you know, Biden has done a lot and the and the Trump people are grumbling, but Biden has done a lot. For example, uh, Trump uh, got into a fight with the head of Pfizer. And he and Pfizer fought because he thought Pfizer was slowing the uh, role, you know, it was slowing its production of the vaccine to help Biden uh, win the election in November. Except whether or not he got into a fight with Pfizer or not, apparently that didn't slow down the production of the vaccine or may even have sped it up. Who, who knows? And Biden praises Pfizer and the head of Pfizer. Apparently that's enough. That's really enough to say that Biden has done better than Trump. Um, that's number one. And finally, in the end, after saying, well, you know, Trump, they set up this factory and that factory, the Biden people said, make the factory a 24-hour factory instead of an 18-hour factory. So that's great. I'm glad they did it. Uh, the notion that somehow that is equal to having, you know, kicked this off and gotten the ball rolling down the hill is ridiculous. And finally, the piece acknowledges that Mr. Biden's White House has pursued a starkly different messaging campaign than Trump's under promise and then try to over deliver. Mr. Trump routinely boasted of imminent achievements, including a vaccine rollout before Election Day, only to fall short. By contrast, health experts complained, at least initially, Biden was overly cautious because, of course, he said he would only average one million shots a day during his first uh, 100 days in office. And we're now pretty close to 3 million, and we haven't reached 100 days in office. So basically, Biden is going to get credit for Operation Warp Speed. He's tried to claim it. The media are going to help him claim it. Uh, the New York Times is winking and nodding that, you know, you know, maybe they, they could be a little nicer to the Trump people and acknowledge that they did well. But clearly, they are not, they, they didn't call out the, the bull crap uh, when it was going on with the 100 million doses a day. And they're only ruefully and sort of humorously talking about it now. So that is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, over the weekend, I heard Fareed Zakaria say that um, Joe Biden has overhauled 
and completely revamped the the vaccine uh, pro- program. Now, I, I think I think what what Joe Biden has done is fine and good, um, but it is on the essentially the same trajectory that it was on before he took office. The the, the uh, vaccinations were, were were steadily going up and they continue to steadily go up. We knew that there were uh, additional vaccines that were going to be uh, given the okay. They have been given the okay and they've been shipped and this is and it's all for the good, but there's there's been no sort of reversal of policy. Biden administration has had one pretty profound victory that is theirs and theirs alone, which is the <clears throat> completely impossible to imagine a year ago um, effort on the part of Johnson, Johnson and Merck to make the same vaccine. Now, I, I live in New Jersey. Pharmaceutical industry is New Jersey's mascot. And this idea that these two firms that are at each other's throats normally would would cooperate on this is uh, quite a feat. Uh, and, and it's the Biden administration's alone and they should enjoy it. But one of the problems that we all encountered at the onset of this pandemic was the regulatory framework around producing vaccines in the medical industry generally um, was a profound obstacle, not just for producing vaccines in, in in a rapid pace that was unseen in our history before, but even just getting testing out and testing, uh, creating new tests and getting them, um, you know, processed. Um, a lot of that encountered a ton of red tape, bureaucratic red tape, that this administration is going to be conceptually unable, ideologically unable to acknowledge, due in part to the fact that they believe regulating the economy and particularly regulating big industries like the pharmaceutical industry is the sine qua non of an equitable society. They can't acknowledge the obstacles that had to be removed in order to get us to this place. Well, there's a there's a there's a another example of that with regard to border policy, right? In terms of both the challenge the media is having in framing what's going on, and the the Biden administration's built-in sort of ideological priors with regard to the border. So we have a crisis. No one's going to call it a crisis. We have kids in cages. No one's saying that either. It, there is something going on and the the, the absolutely deliberate efforts not to say what everyone sees with their own eyes is going to prompt a backlash. It certainly has already, I mean, for the media, obviously, the further erosion of trust, but for the Biden administration to dance around what's going on or to keep delaying. And I think yesterday during her press briefing, Jen Psaki basically refused to answer a question about administration policy by claiming it was the you know Department of Homeland Security's issue. Well, who's in charge of the Department of Homeland Security? Yeah. Uh, follow it to the top. So the buck stops here is clearly not the messaging they want with regard to the border. But, you know, we did it all is the one they're now starting to take for the vaccine rollout. Well, it's interesting about that because the border is literally one of those things like when they, uh, you know, ended bail and let and let. uh you know, felons out of jail in in New York State in in large numbers, uh, both before and after uh, after the pandemic started. You know, the the crime jump was forty eight hours later. It was something like that. It was like a perfect storm that in thirty days there was suddenly a crime wave in New York City, pretty much because of these releases, right? And so here you have Biden ordering. ICE and all that to stand down, to not interfere with people coming across the border and all that. And then you have these um, facilities at capacity in six weeks. Um, so unlike what we're talking about in terms of, uh, of of what kind of credit the Biden administration will be able to take for the economic recovery, which will all be you know mixed in with uh, other larger macroeconomic trends... There's nothing that changed uh, at the border except for the guidance that said, don't, you know, l- let them come over. So guess what? They've come over. So guess what? Th- there are more of them. Um, and yeah, they are going to own that too. And uh, I will just be interested to see what Jacob Soboroff of MSNBC and everybody like that who who wept bitter tears over the evil of family separations and all of that, what they're going to say in May when this doesn't relent. Uh, are they going to start putting pre- what are, I mean, and and their own policy prescriptions are things like, well, let them all go. So let's see what happens. Are they going to let? Are they are they going to hold Biden's feet to the fire and say, let them let them go, let them let them move into the United States because the conditions that they're being held in are 
are impossible? Or are they going to say for their own good, they should be deported? Aha! For their, yeah, that like that'll happen, right? <laughs> um, uh, that's going to be a very uh, telling in, or, or do they just stop being all that interested in the issue all of a sudden? Um, because rather than kids in cages, they're children in shelters. Um, but that's one where the, the, the far left will be um, applying a lot of pressure on the, you know, supposed uh, establishment uh, uh, liberals and, and Democrats. I mean, they're, they're, they won't, they won't stop paying attention to it. Maybe. I don't remember them paying a huge amount of attention in 2014 and 2015 when uh, Obama had the border crisis. Border crisis is one of those issues that is uh, that, that turned out to... That was pre-squad. To, right. But they tried to flip it, right? They tried to... The border helped win Trump the election, and then they tried to flip the border into a moral, humanitarian, spiritual, you know, uh, crisis. And now, uh, having established this uh, baseline, my general belief is that liberals will tend to want to stop talking about kids in cages at the border when the cages are not being administered by the the Trump administration. So um, we'll see how powerful that uh, forgetting is uh, versus the ideological predilections of the squad and people like that, or how serious their ideology is and how, or are they much more controlled themselves by wanting to make sure that Democrats remain in power? And we don't really know the answer to that. Uh, but it is annoying and it is anxiety provoking. And therefore, maybe you should find some way to alleviate your anxiety when you think about it. Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that helped you sleep, focus, act, be better? There is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. Headspace is the daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app. One of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Um, Christine, uh, we we have a piece in our upcoming issue, which we will be closing like Friday, and therefore we'll have up much of it uh, up on uh, may, maybe we'll have a little bit up on Friday, and then uh, the rest of it up on Monday on the website at commentarymagazine.com, where we give you a few free reads and then ask you to subscribe, and you should subscribe because you know that's what a that's what a good citizen does when uh, instead of just uh, you know like um, listening to this podcast for free, you know. Um, uh, but you have a piece uh, that we call the case of Taylor, and I'm not sure we know how to pronounce her name. L-O-R-E-N-Z. I mean, we've been saying Lorenz. It could be Lawrence, but let's we'll just say Lorenz for now. Taylor Lawrence, the social media reporter of the New York Times, who finds herself in a dust-up right now with um, an in, the interesting uh, idi- cross-ideological team of Tucker Carlson and Glenn Greenwald. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, the thing that most listeners who might not know anything about her should know in advance is that she's always in a dust up, which is something you should know about her as a journalist. Um, I actually we fin- I turned that piece in before this most recent kerfuffle, but it is absolutely following the, the usual playbook. Her, her M.O. is um, despite being a woman who's pushing 40, she likes to describe herself as a young woman. You know, she's kind of this naive babe in the woods. You know, uh, she goes into these spaces, which I'm quite sure the older dudes who edit her at the New York Times have never heard of on TikTok. Virtual, and, virtual, virtual spaces. spaces, yes. And she befriends people. Um, 
rather than doing what a journalist should do, which is like cultivate sources. She befriend these are her friends. Um, in the case of the uh, the underage daughter of Kellyanne Conway and George Conway, she called her her mutual and encouraged her and amplified her obviously emotionally distressed TikTok videos when Kellyanne Conway was still in the White House. Um, and then whenever she is criticized for some of her um, unethical journalistic practices, she immediately deletes all the tweets that prove she was being unethical and then talks about how she's being stalked. She's being harassed. She can't believe people would treat her so terribly. It's just awful. All while she continues to do the same thing herself on Twitter. So, I mean, there's an obvious uh, answer to a lot of her problems, which is she should get off social media. She can absolutely report on social media without being the main event and the main character in all these dramas that she perpetuates. And it should lead people to be a little bit suspicious of her reporting because what she, rather than going out and seeing what the story is, she tries to make a story where she is often the center of attention because she's victimized by the people involved in the story she's writing. So she did this infamously on the Clubhouse app, which is a new kind of audio social media um, chat chat room, kind of like old party lines. Abe's tried it. It's really there are a lot of interesting, unfettered conversations. And I use that phrase deliberately because the fact that these conversations are unfettered was Taylor Lawrence's takeaway about why they were bad, right? No one's controlling what people say, how terrible. She made up a lie about a about a, a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. I mean, there's many, many, many examples. I didn't even have enough space to include them all. But I think what for, for the average person, what she is is a sign of something about how uh, legacy media institutions like the New York Times now uh, – uh, understand journalism. She's she's considered like a young, hip celebrity in her own right. She's given a lot of uh, leeway in terms of how she practices journalism. And the result is lies and controversies and not a lot of great journalism, in my opinion. Uh, I just want to read a tweet that she put out yesterday. Um, for International Women's Day, please consider supporting women enduring online harassment. It's not an exaggeration to say that the harassment and smear campaign I've had to endure over the past year has destroyed my life. No one should have to go through this. Uh, Taylor Lawrence is somebody who has spent her career destroying people's lives. Like that, that is part and parcel of what she's she does. She's the ultimate mean girl. <laughs> right. Heather, actually, she's a Heather. Yeah. <laughs> but she surfaces things that people say uh, uh, that no one paid attention to elevates them and then sets mobs against the people whose things that have been said, she herself is responsible for making famous. Uh, that is, um, that is one of the reasons that in uh, Jewish law, uh, um, there is a, a prohibition against uh, evil tongue um, and gossip in which um, even if what you are saying is true, uh, you are not supposed to. Uh, you are not actually supposed to uh, speak lashon hara uh, because the consequences to the person that you speak it against might really, really, really be horrible. Even if they deserve it, in some sense, they might really not deserve it, and you should err on the side of caution. Uh, this is her career. This is how she has made her herself famous. And that she should then, as it is the ultimate version of the person who kills her parents and then throws herself on the mercy of the court claiming to be an orphan. She is one of the creators of the culture of destruction, of social media destruction, now complaining that it's coming after her, which it isn't. She's defended by her paper, unlike a lot of people. I was just going to say, she doesn't defend other women at by their paper. She is defended by her paper. She is supported by her paper. She is a journalist at the most important journalistic institution in the in uh, on the planet Earth, and for her to whine like this um, is like it's not just a sign of bad character, which it is, but it's really kind of actively malign. It it has a malignity to it uh, that is quite, I think, startling. The Example of Taylor Lawrence brings up an important point about uh, the intersection of you, us, people, and and big media and uh, social media companies. And let there be no doubt, big tech is trying to suppress free speech they don't agree with, uh, cancel you, cancel people, 
like Taylor Lawrence does. So why exactly are we choosing to give these big tech companies all of our personal data? The lines have been drawn. Big tech has made it clear which side they're on. Now is the time to take a stand. Protect your personal data from big tech with the VPN I use for my online protection, ExpressVPN. Look, every device, phone, laptop, TV, has a unique string of numbers called an IP address. When you search for stuff, watch videos, or even click a link, big tech companies can use that IP to track all your activity and tie it back to you. When I use ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through their secure encrypted servers so these companies can't see my IP address at all. My internet activity becomes anonymized, my network data is encrypted, and the best part is you don't need to be tech-savvy at all to use it. Just download the ExpressVPN app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So stop handing over your data to big tech companies whose aim is to censor you and spy on you. Defend your rights, protect your internet activity with the VPN I use every day. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. Um, so where are we? Uh, I don't know where we are. So maybe we're done. I don't know. Uh, I guess we're done. Well, we need so we need a we need a, a quick a shot and chaser of crushing morosity because we've done mainly cynicism this hour. I think. So. Oh, you want crushing morosity? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't have any for you, anything for you. Hmm. Uh, Abe, you got any got any crushing crushing morosity? Crushing morosity. No, shockingly. No? Well, no. You look. No, you 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 signed on this morning with kind of like a yeah, kind of like a frowny face on. Then you don't have it now, but maybe maybe you have a little crushing morosity for us. No, I don't. And the reason why I was frowny facing is because I've been at the gym every morning this week, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's literally it. I uh, exercise kills. <laughs> I'm with you. This is one of Abe's. This is one of Abe's signature issues that we have so far kept off the podcast. <laughs> it needs its own special episode, I think. Actually, yeah. at this point, there needs a very special episode. Yes, yes, yes. Abe, Abe, uh, Abe. Part of Abe's job on on Facebook is to is to uh, re, re put back out any story involving anybody getting injured or suffering or something happened as a result of them doing exercise. It's a very very important part of his public facing persona on on Facebook. So um uh this is uh this is authoritative listen guidelines. Privately by which you, know, you yes, can yes. you know gauge your, your interaction with healthful activities. Pri- I await Abe's guidelines on um on the treadmill. Yes. I'm much like uh, the uh, public health professionals who get you know caught being um hypocrites Privately, I sometimes pursue my own self-destruction and actually uh, exercise. But no one can see you. Right. No one can see you. Abe, Abe, uh, Abe uses um, there's some kind of piece of equipment that he has been that he is that he was using during the pandemic to lose like 20 pounds. So even though he says exercise kills, it like he looked fantastic. So so you know the hypocrisy is just staggering. Anyway, so. Here we go. No crushing morosity for you today, but don't worry, there'll be plenty tomorrow. So for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>